From the Center for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark, I'm Tenya Henson, and this is a War Pod. In this episode, recorded on the 10th of December, I talked to Danita Berg, postdoc at Center for War Studies at University of Southern Denmark. Danita has an upcoming book publication about the disputed Arctic region, titled International Disputes and Cultural Ideas in the Canadian Arctic, Arctic Sovereignty in the National Consciousness. In her book, she pays special attention to the Canadian perception of the Arctic and not least the delimitations of sovereignty in the region. What do Canadians affiliate with the Arctic? Who owns the Arctic and who thinks they own it? And what roles do the other Arctic states play in all of this? Welcome, and thank you for uh, participating in this. We're very happy to have you. Thank you for having me. If I can start off, I want to say thank you for a great read. I read your book over the weekend. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, So my first uh, question would be, maybe not even a question, but I'd like you to maybe talk about your book a bit. Tell me the gist of it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, So the... The book has been based upon research I've been doing over the past six years. It's really the the coming together of that project, which has uh, multiple parts, but the book is the the central element of it. Um, I'm from Canada, and I grew up in rural Newfoundland, and ideas about where the Arctic and the North are, what are they, have, have always captured my attention. You know, as a kid growing up, and you're going out ice fishing, and and you're, you're, you're going and you have all this wilderness around you and you wonder sometimes, particularly when we have winters that just won't stop, <laughs> whether, or not, uh, you know, whether or not I am in the Arctic, am I in the North? And it seems rather silly, but it really inspired me. And so throughout all of my studies, I've always studied things involving the Arctic and the North. And so in the end, I ended up doing this, this project And I was inspired by the fact that what makes up the Arctic and the North within Canadian society is quite multifaceted and nuanced. And it's not one simple thing, and certainly not one simple thing that has been static over a period of time. It's very fluid and has many different elements. There's the most recognizable, romanticized elements, but there's also key elements that come from our economic conceptions about what the Arctic is and what it does and what it can be, as well as a a healthy dose of concern about sovereignty, which really plays into the security notions. But in addition to the security notions being influenced by this notion of sovereignty, it really comes from this idea of needing to protect. And protection it comes very much from two elements. One is this idea of um, threats coming to the Arctic region in the form of you know, very Cold War-inspired ideas about you know, Soviet submarines underneath the ice, <laughs> the American submarines, anybody's submarines, really. <laughs> We're quite terrified about submarines. <laughs> and because we, we, didn't, you know, we didn't have the means to, to track and follow them, or certainly to intercept them and do anything about it. And so this has created all these ideas in, 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 in the, uh, the public's imagination. And in addition to that, there's also these ideas about the environmental protection side. And that really started to generate in the 1960s. And it's really interesting for me, being from Canada, seeing this grow, uh, is because 
we're seeing now with climate change a lot of concern about the Arctic region and the, the implications of global warming and climate change. These concerns about the use of the Arctic region and the protection of the Arctic region, however, is not a recent concern, and particularly in the case of Canada, dates back well over 40, 45 years. Mm-hmm. And so these different elements influence how it is that Canada conceives its relationship with the Arctic region, and I've always been fascinated by it. And when we say the words Arctic and North, very rarely do we give it the weight of all these different nuanced elements that go into making these regions what they are. And so that's really what has inspired me to write this book, trying to decipher what is the Arctic and the North for Canada, and how has this evolved over a period of time? And ultimately, what are the implications of this on how Canada deals with things on the international level? You write this book about how Canada <laughs> sees the Arctic region, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is um, involved with the influence this place <laughs> on the international environment and other state actors. Mm. You mentioned yourself, you are scared of submarines, no matter... <laughs> well, not personally, but yes. <laughs> but as a Canadian, maybe. Um. <laughs> There's certainly a national preoccupation some t- <laughs> at certain points in time. That's also part of your book where you show some of these case examples. Uh, there's, a, there's a vessel that I name in the book, the Polar Sea, mm. but that's not a submarine. That's okay. a, uh, a U.S. Coast Guard vessel. Um, but. You know, the subject of submarines particularly plays into the security conceptions about the Arctic region, which are heavily inspired by Cold War imagery and really emerged from the Cold War period. So in the 1950s and the 1960s, especially around the time when, you know, not just Canada, but its chief ally, the United States, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of concern about what's happening underneath the polar ice cap. And so that's really where the... uh, the nuclear-powered submarines in particular. The nuclear-powered submarines rather than just submarines in general because of their capacity to stay underneath the ice conditions. And it's a it's a military asset that Canada just doesn't have. And you would also struggle to get this military capacity, as I understand from your book. Nuclear power technology, particularly uh, military technology, is a lot harder to come by than uh, than and politician would let you believe on the surface. Mm-hmm. Simply making a statement that we're going to acquire them is rather misleading about how difficult it is because there's a lot of international agreements about the proliferation of nuclear power technology. And that's something that Canada encountered in the 1960s when it had considered getting nuclear powered submarines for the protection of the Arctic region mm-hmm. and ultimately decided against it in part because of the cost but also because of the complications that it encountered with even getting permission to get access to this technology in order to get submarines. Now that we're on this track, can I ask you about how your book and the way Canada sees the Arctic plays into what happened with Ukraine 2004 and Russia? Maybe you'd like to elaborate on this? Well, it really plays into this idea of uh, protecting Canadian Arctic sovereignty. So this is a a rather loose and somewhat diluted concept that really plays well within Canadian media and Canadian politics at a federal level. 
It's, you know, sovereignty is not used in a typical law definition sort of way. It's this loose concept that's really tied up into the conceptions of the Arctic and, and whether or not we're going to lose something. Never entirely sure what that something is, <laughs> but there's this, this concept that we need to protect something. And Canada has a history of seeing the Arctic in this rather protectionist way when there's any sort of hint that somebody else might be wanting to take it. That doesn't really play directly into what happened in the Ukraine, but it plays into a way of promoting the Arctic as something that needs to be protected that was happening during the government that was in power at the time under pr former Prime Minister Stephen Harper mm -hmm. and the Conservative Party. And during their tenure, they talked a lot about the need to do more in the Arctic in terms of protection and economic development. And with what happened in the Ukraine, it really triggered a lot of these Cold War sentiments about the idea that you know, the Russia is remilitarizing and that they could be doing more. And of course, Russia you know, is your neighbor, your next door neighbor, when you look on the map. In, in the Arctic region, certainly. And you know, Russia had been doing certain things, not just to Canada, but to other states, particularly these flybys near state territories and, and military vessels. And all of this led essentially to a perfect storm of Canadian conceptions of the Arctic, you know, Russia dealing with its own issues and its own, you know, geostrategic interests, <laughs> and ultimately led to the federal government in Canada playing quite hard on this idea that Canada's sovereignty was going to be impacted by what was happening with Russia's developments. It became symbolic in, in many respects that if they can do it to the Ukraine, they can do it anywhere. Mm -hmm. And potentially, this could be a reigniting of tensions in the Arctic region. Now, Canada received a lot of flack for how it handled the Ukraine crisis, particularly during a chairmanship of the Arctic Council. So whether or not there was ever an actual threat to, to be had in the Arctic region, I mean, there's questions to be had about that. But certainly there was a belief that more needed to be done to securitize the Arctic at the time, as was exemplified by military exercises that were done by NATO allied partners and the stopping of military exercises that were potentially planned to have with cooperation with Russia. Okay. Has this simmered down now? It's been Absolutely. three years. Yes. Yeah. It, it has. It has. Uh, but it certainly isn't forgotten. Sanctions are still in place. People are still concerned. But it's not front and center in the uh, political discussions at the moment. Um, if I can go back to the point about Canadians perceiving the Arctic as Canadian, mm -hmm whereas some other states and peoples might not see it this way. I found a quote in your book that I found quite interesting, which says, um, the only region where the majority see the passage, this is the Northwest Passage, as belonging to Canada is Canada itself. Other countries see it as an international waterway or as territory whose ownership is in dispute. Mm -hmm. um, 
Maybe this is a big question, but how did Canadians come to perceive <laughs> the Northwest Passage as their own? Um, I know you deal with this. That's a long story. <laughs> Give me uh, the short version. The short, the abridged version is is that it slowly developed over time. Mm-hmm. And as you know, the book isn't focused on one specific time period. It really does look at the Arctic, starting back. You know, acknowledging the presence of indigenous peoples and acknowledging the fact that they have not been incorporated as much as they can and as much as they should, particularly given the legal and political changes happening within Canada. They have even been used as a bit of a political weapon at some point by placing them in these regions. Yes, and, and, and Canada has had to make amends for its misuse. Mm-hmm. And it's an ongoing process, by no means concluded. Okay. There's a lot of a lot of different uh, elements to that relationship. It's, it's quite complex. But when it comes to understanding the Northwest Passage as Canadian, the, the story really harks back to before Canada was ever really Canada. It really starts back with, with Canada's past as a colony of the British Empire and with the way that the northern waters, not simply the what became known as the Northwest Passage, but the northern waters were explored by British Navy and different merchants from different countries that were interested in in the economic opportunities that the Arctic presented at the time, particularly when it came to the fur trade and with whaling. Mm-hmm. And there slowly developed this perception of this idea, because the Northwest Passage is essentially an idea. There is no one Northwest Passage. Interesting. The Northwest Passage is a series of different waterways through the islands north of Canada's mainland, the Arctic Archipelago. And developing, particularly during you know the Victorian era, you know most famously you, you have the search for for Franklin and the lost vessels, the Erebus and the Terror, which were recently found in Canada. But you know we, we've spent over well in excess of a hundred years searching for these vessels. It's, it's become this national obsession. Mm-hmm. Somehow Franklin's become Canadian. But this is all lent to this slowly developing belief that this Northwest Passage is Canada's. And, it, and it's not simply some guys went and looked for it and now suddenly it's Canadian. But over a period of time through the the generation of narratives and the projection of narratives within Canadian society the way that maps have been drawn mm-hmm. and the way that they have been essentially validated by the government, by the government of Canada, drawing borders in a certain way repeatedly over a hundred years. This has lent to a belief that whatever is between these boundaries must be Canada's. Mm-hmm. And part of what essentially became between these boundaries, whether they were legal or not, was these waters. And slowly over time, and with nobody really overtly correcting Canada for much of this period, there generated a belief that this Northwest Passage was Canada's. It's hard to pinpoint an exact time when the light bulb moment occurred, but it is, as often happens with these uh, beliefs that become ingrained within societies, it happens over a long period of time. So the slow projection and just the incorporation, and eventually we take it for granted that this is simply how everybody else views it in Canada, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending <laughs> upon how you want to look at it. You know, they, they encountered the fact that others don't agree with the Northwest Passage being Canada's. You know, back in 1969 is when it really became apparent. 
though it wasn't entirely unknown to politicians before then. But, you know, it became apparent that the Canadian public was not too interested in whether or not it was legally claimed. And so began the slow process of balancing the fact that Canada has this rather firm belief that the Northwest Passage is Canada's it, in Canadian society. And it's essentially now it's taken for granted. It is Canada's. Mm -hmm. And there's not a whole lot you can do to shake them of that belief. But it is questioned, isn't it? For oh, instance, it's, with it's the U.S. by vessels. everybody else. Yeah, can you give an example of how this is questioned besides from anyone actually raising their arms and posing the question? Well, I mean, the, the most apparent examples, and it's quite covered a lot in, in academic literature, is the examples of how the United States, because it has its own history of the freedom of the seas policy, that it has, for example, in 1969, it refused to recognize that, you know, that this might be Canadian waters. For its part, the government of Canada hadn't formally claimed them at the time. And that led to a kind of a snowballing effect, no pun intended, <laughs> that, you know, I, I know, it. I More know, puns. Huh? Oh. that um, gradually th there came the development of different legislation and, and policies by Canada to where we're at today. But the United States has a rather firm belief in the freedom of the seas, and it sees the Northwest Passage as an international strait meaning it doesn't have to ask Canada's permission to use it. And it's been quite consistent with its policy. Mm -hmm. Now, the two states work together on security issues, and for much of its history, the Canadian Arctic region has been quite cluttered with ice. And the implication of that is that it hasn't exactly been a happening place. <laughs> but we'll see how this all gets impacted with climate change, because that's really what we're looking at now is how is climate change going to impact the way that the Arctic region is being used. Also, uh, now that you mentioned climate change, mm -hmm. um, in your book you describe this distinction between um, security issues that focus on sovereignty and mm -hmm. security issues where you have this uh, stewardship function. Mm -hmm. um, and I imagine climate change might make the stewardship function of Canada and this way of saying these are our waters, let's look at us protecting these waters to be emphasized even more, um, also because they will become more relevant, one would imagine. Well, Canada has been quite successful at framing itself as a steward of the Arctic environment. It really kick-started this whole concept and that, you know, going back, a lot happened in 1969 <laughs> uh, and that's why it's covered so much in the literature, but, you know, long story short, an American oil tanker was making a test run to see the viability of turning the Northwest Passage into a shipping route for oil from Alaska mm -hmm. over to the eastern seaboard of the United States. Ultimately, the company decided to, to go a different route. But that triggered the whole slew of things for Canada, and one of them was a hyper-awareness of the fact that if something goes wrong up there, we're going to have a lot of problems on our hands. But at the same time, we're dealing with the fact that the public has come out with this awareness that we had underestimated, you know, just how strongly they believe that these waters belong to Canada, even though we haven't formally claimed them. And at the time, the government didn't want to go that route because 
you know, there was a whole lot happening in Canada at the time, and you read the book and you find out all about it. Yes. But this idea of stewardship, it, the way that I see it and, and the way that I describe it in the book, it's about balancing the romantic ideas of the Arctic being this kind of pristine other world and the economic ideas about this being an area where people can go into, albeit with the Canadian conceptions of this economic side, you know, go into with Canada's permission and Canada's <laughs> opportunity to profit from it. But, but, you know, balancing the two, both maintaining the pristine, but also pursuing economic opportunities while doing so in a way that balances nature and economic development in as safe and environmentally friendly way as humanly possible. Naturally, there's conflicts there, but, you know, it's an ideal type. And Canada developed this piece of legislation that was rather landmark and, you know, really helped Canada promote itself as a steward, which was the Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act. Nice word. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I didn't come up with it. <laughs> you know, compliment Ivan Head. Uh, so this legislation, the AWPPA, was rather central to Canada's ability to market itself as a steward of the Arctic environment and has really become the cornerstone upon which Canada has developed through practice of protesting against the what it saw at the time as the inadequate international laws in terms of protecting the Arctic, and not, not just the Arctic, but maritime regions in general, mm -hmm. and to pursue the fact that the Arctic is an area where if something happens, if there's an oil spill, we are ill-prepared to deal with this because of the environmental conditions, the amount of effort it would take to get up there and do anything about it, and a whole slew of other factors. But ultimately, it was about the fact that instead of us simply responding to when something goes wrong, let's prevent it before it happens. Mm -hmm. One thing I really liked in your book, maybe it's because I'm not a professional reader, I'm just <laughs> an everyday person reading your book, was the letters to Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe you can describe it better than I can, but how this reinforced the image in the minds of Canadians that because Santa Claus lives on the North Pole, mm -hmm. And we are mailing these letters to Canadian postal code. Yeah. The North Pole is part of Canada. Um, maybe you can say it better than I could, but would you explain this argument? Um, because it's it's a funny little thing that actually works pretty well to explain how ideas can become a perception of reality that many people share. Yeah, no problem. So. In the book, I give a number of different examples about different you know, factors that have, over time, contributed to this cultural integration of this idea that the Arctic is Canada's. And, and I'll qualify that by saying not the Arctic in its entirety, mm -hmm. but you know, a certain portion of it within Canada's proximity. However, Very vague. <laughs> I like well, it. Well, <laughs> it's vague because there is a part of that which Canada conceptualizes as its own, which others protest. And this concept of Santa, Santa being Canadian uh, is very much part of it, because what you're alluding to is this idea of sector theory. Mm -hmm. And so this, this notion of sector theory has been around for quite some time in Canada, 
And while it's been formally renounced by the previous prime minister, it still, even after he renounced it, it still showed up on the occasional map. So what is sector theory for uh, the listener uh, yeah. that doesn't know? So it's essentially someone sat down with a ruler <laughs> and, you know, minus some squiggly lines up between, you know, Ellesmere Island in Canada and, and Greenland because, you know, it's an equidistance principle as to, as to how the boundary has been drawn between the two, essentially meaning every side has an equal amount. Mm -hmm. Straight lines up to the North Pole from the most easterly and westerly points of Canada. But this isn't something that's recognized by other states. And these are not the boundaries of Canada which the Canadian government formally claims. However, these are lines which have been perpetuated within the Canadian society over generations. And this notion that Santa Claus is Canadian really feeds into this idea that Canada would claim the North Pole, which has really come up with uh, the Yunklosk and uh, the Continental Shelf Extension stuff that's been happening up in the Arctic region over the past, you know, couple of decades. And, you know, during the previous government under Stephen Harper, this notion that Canada, need, you know, we need to include our Continental Shelf needs to go up as far as the North Pole. And he, for example, gave... Um, gave recognition of Santa Claus being Canadian. But this isn't a Harper-exclusive thing. No. What he's playing on is a notion that's been around in Canada for quite some time. And while the current Prime Minister, who at the time was in the official opposition, said, you know, maybe we should wait and just, you know, base this on science, <laughs> he didn't formally come out and say Santa Claus isn't Canadian, because that wouldn't be particularly palatable. However, this letters to Santa thing. The point I make in the book is that we get Canadians when they're young. <laughs> because Canada Post has been doing this service and I this isn't to say that Canada Post is somehow trying to of course not. To, to do something to children and, and indoctrinate an idea for political purposes. By no means. But what it is, it's a reflection of these ideas within Canada that Canada, you know, that Canada and Santa Claus, well, you know, Santa Claus is in Canada. I think it's interesting because being from Denmark myself, I grew up watching so many TV shows at, around Christmas time saying, did you know um, Santa lives on the North Pole, which is part of Greenland? And all that would be shows. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that would be right. And you were telling me true. earlier that no, Finnish people true. say something similar. Well, the Finnish people have Lapland, and you're seeing now the promotion of you know the hundredth anniversary of Finland gaining independence. That in a lot of that promotion is about the fact that Santa Claus lives in Finland, and I'm sure that you know Russia, who also claims the North Pole, they probably have their own cultural ideas about you know the Christmas season. But it's interesting because. This idea of, so, the postal code, and I, I know this because I was a child in Canada <laughs> and I wrote letters to Santa Claus. And you're still waiting for and those I presents. I am still waiting for my presents. Where's my pony? <laughs> uh, but... I wish you could bring a pony into the <laughs> studio now. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but yeah, so, the postal code is Santa Claus, North Pole, H-O-H-O-H-O, -H -O -H -O, Canada. I love the H-O-H thing. I know, it's brilliant. 
But I remember as a child writing these letters, and this program's been around, you know, nationally since the 1980s, though it did start locally in the 1970s in a, in a, in a part of in mm-hmm. Canada. But it's extremely popular. They get like a million letters a year. And in languages from all different parts of the world, it's really popular. And it seems rather benign. But even when I was growing up, it never occurred to me that Santa Claus wasn't Canadian. And I mean, it seems rather silly. But these ideas help to generate and perpetuate this belief as to just how far Canada's sovereignty extends. And most recently, I I did a a book launch for this book in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. And one of the the people in the audience, afterwards we had a conversation. And this gentleman used to live in Canada. He's long since retired from his work. He's from the UK. And he was astonished that he'd never heard that other people disagreed that this is that the North Pole wasn't Canadian and that the Northwest Passage wasn't Canadian. He'd never heard this before. And so it it really gives you a sense of just how much these ideas get taken for granted and perpetuated over time. And oftentimes we don't realize that people see things differently until suddenly I'm talking to you about Santa being in Canada and you're saying, hold on a moment, I'm pretty (laughs) sure he's in Greenland. (laughs) And then suddenly we realize that We've been working on this assumption that everybody agrees with us, and ultimately, that's not really how it works. But it can influence how states relate to each other. So even though Santa doesn't exist, it can still have real-life consequences. It can still mean that there's a U.S. vessel telling Canada, we're not going to ask for permission, we're telling you that we're using this Thank you so much. Your book sounds incredibly interesting, just like it was reading it. (laughs) Um, I think my final question would be, what are you up to now? Mm. What can I expect from you? What can you expect from me? Well, uh, at the moment, uh, I'm finishing up a second book, looking at cooperation within the Arctic Council. So you're staying in the Arctic, as always? I am. I do enjoy it, Uh, particularly the the minimal bugs during this time of year. (laughs) Um, Not so much the mosquitoes. Uh, when the spring comes, but uh, no, I, I'm doing a book on cooperation within the Arctic Council and the, the challenges of cooperating there, uh, but also how the, the different states are trying to manage that. And it's really been a, an interesting exploration of cooperation throughout the region and hearing the different points of view of the different delegates. Um, and that has been a project that has been supported by the Carlsberg Foundation, who've been quite generous and uh, and helped me come here to Denmark, to the University of Southern Denmark and the, the Center for War Studies here. We're very happy to have you. And, uh, and that project concludes now in February. And in March, um, I've been quite fortunate to receive uh, um, another postdoc, t- again, to, to stay here, fortunately, through the European Commission, the Marie Curie Individual Fellowship, and I'll be Congratulations. starting. Congratulations. Thank you. And I will be starting a project looking at the the role of NGOs, so non-governmental organizations, and, and how they play into the dynamics of the politics and their incorporation into the, the political discussions happening within the Arctic region. It's a lot happening in the Arctic region. It's a it's a rather interesting place and I'm very happy to keep studying it.
We're happy you keep studying it. I hope that after your next book launch, because you're apparently just like <laughs> pushing books out uh, one at a time. Um, but I hope you might be interested in coming back. It's been super interesting listening to your uh, your stories and your way of describing this book that you obviously spend a lot of time writing. <laughs>